So anyone who believes in any God of any kind is always going to come up to a question that they must resolve. And this applies from the greatest of religions down to the weirdest and most obscure of local tribal ideas. And the question is, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And uh, it's not a question that just applies to religious people, even those seemingly entirely disinterested in faith cannot help but ask the same question. The latest idea to blow through our universities and schools is a rather dated idea that you can do anything you like. Whatever you like, you can do. What if I don't want to? Well, that's not allowed. <laughs> that's different. Ironically, freedom has become the new law. You are free to think anything you like except for that kind of a thing. How did the hippies become the hypocrites? How did the licentious become the legalists? The answer is because we cannot help it. We can't help it. The question runs far too deep for us to avoid it. It's a universal human question. What must I do? We might disagree about what the answer is quite strongly. But every single one of us assumes that there is an answer. To be good, I must do good. So tell me, what must I do? Let's uh, turn to Galatians, shall we, chapter 3. There's one verse today, and that's verse 13. But really, to get our heads around it, we need some context from the passages immediately either side of it. So we'll turn to Galatians 3, and we'll begin at verse number 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So this tells us the Galatian people had received the good news. They'd understood grace. They had heard about the cross, and they had come to believe that on the cross, Christ had died for their sins and reconciled them to God through his work alone. And they were now right with God by grace. They were believers. But the church had been infiltrated by some people peddling old ideas, recycled, dressed up as new. And here's the trick. The ideas really looked good. They sounded holy. And they were starting to take root in the church because the ideas answered the central human question. What do I need to do? Very specifically, Judaizers had come into the church and they'd said to all of the Christians there, you guys are doing so well. We, we love that you're interested in God. We see that you've, you've turned to God. You're taking him seriously. You're taking your faith seriously. You are so nearly there. And all you need to do now is to add into the grace of Christ on the cross just a few of those those old works of the law. And that will get God fully on your side. And that will take you away from the curse and it will bring you into the blessing and that will enhance your faith. Paul says, these ideas sound good. But they are in fact so horrible that they are tantamount to witchcraft. They've been tricked. The church is now spellbound under a spell with these ideas. Works, he says, do not add to your faith. 
they take away. If I gave to you the greatest liquid known to humankind, which, by the way, comes in pints, warm, nut-brown otter ale, fresh from the head of the Otter Valley in rural Devonshire, where nectar itself pours forth from the earth. If I gave you a beautiful pint of otter, and you were to add into that pint a quantity of mass-produced, fizzy, Budweiser, filth, not brewed, but secreted, we can only presume, from the bladders of things they found, and then chilled to disguise the source. Let me tell you now, you would not be improving upon that pint. I know, I've been there. Our works poured in, added in to the work of the cross, does not improve upon it. Our works traduce the cross, they pollute the cross, they dilute the cross, the admixture of works into the work of the cross is an accusation that somehow Christ's work on the cross was deficient, Paul says. Now before we laugh at the Galatian church with their drinking games, we say, what are they thinking? How on earth could anybody see the glory of the cross of Christ and then add in something lesser of their own? We need to be aware, of course, that this can happen to any one of us because the question, what do I need to do, runs so deep. It's central human think. At one point or another, all of us will come back to this question. It's our default position. The Reformation, a few of us were studying at the Adult Forum a few weeks ago, was all about this. So the medieval church had discovered that ideas about works to get right with God had crept into the church, and the church was proclaiming that you need to add to the grace of Christ something else. And uh, whether it was certain items, or it was substances, or people, or places, or prayers, or whatever it might have been, more often than not, just bald offerings of cash to get God on your side. These things had led the people into slavery. They were bewitched, if you like, to use Paul's language. The uh, Book of Common Prayer actually says that these practices had given rise to a, a great many superstitions. If you like, the people of England were spellbound, trapped in this idea they had to somehow work their way to salvation themselves. And they were afraid. They were terrified that they'd not done enough. And we can look at that point in history and we can say, what were they thinking? We can laugh at them. But the scholar Alan Cole says, we cannot afford to do that. He says, we cannot afford to smile at them and laugh. Remember how superstitiously some today can look, for example, on membership or even physical reception of water baptism or some other rite as the thing that seals the deal. Well, I must be saved, you see, because there's a piece of paper in a file up there. So I'm all right. We got the baby done. He hates Jesus' guts, but we got the baby done. So he's all right, okay? So easy to slip into these ideas. 
We can't laugh at the Galatian church 2,000 years ago, laugh at the English church 500 years ago without laughing at ourselves and seeing we repeat the same ideas because the human question is so central to how we think. Even uh, David Zorl, a pastor David Zorl, says that we can't really laugh at anybody because even in really grace-filled churches like this one, We hear every week that our past has been wiped away and we've been set free regardless of anything we've done in the past and we've had a new start. Even in churches like this, our tendency is to bring the law back in one way or another. We insinuate. If we just get certain things right, we'll be okay. If you get your giving right and your serving right and you raise your kids in just the right way and you treat your spouse in just the right way, then good things will happen, and then you'll be safe, then you'll be okay, then you can have the happy life, and nothing will go wrong, provided you check all the boxes all the time. We tell people in the contemporary church how to get in spiritual shape themselves. And then when we've done it, or so we think, we pride ourselves that we're superior to the next church along that doesn't quite do it as well as us then we hold our pastors up, then our pastors let us down, and then we run away. And Pastor Zoll concludes, if we teach a Jesusified version of do more, be more, self-optimize, then what we'll have in church is what we have in every other walk of life, which is burnout. It is exhausting trying to save yourself. So Paul says, verse 2, Let me ask you only this, which is like when Columbo says, oh, just one more thing, (laughs) right? That's the thing. (laughs) It's not an add-on. It's the main point. Just one more thing. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Someone's going to jail. Verse 2. One more thing. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit? Were you imbued with the Holy Spirit? Did God himself dwell within you by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Go back to the start of how you became a Christian, whether you had a great conversion moment in your adulthood or whether you were raised in a Christian family and somehow on slow boil in a moment it clicked and you can't quite say when that moment was. When you turn to Christ in faith, when you receive the Holy Spirit, tell me this, was that by obeying the law? He's asking this to the Galatian church. No, obviously, because they hadn't even heard of it yet. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? If your entry into the church was by grace, what on earth makes you think that your progression through the church would be by any other means? The great revivalist John Wimber used to say, the way in is the way on. Think about your experiences, verse 5. You've all seen miracles. Did you receive those miracles through keeping the law? No, because you hadn't even heard of it yet. You received them by grace. And then he says, let's test the theory at the extreme, shall we? Judaizers have come into the church saying you need to be more Jewish. So let's look at the most Jewish person they knew and see how he got saved. Abraham. Well, that cannot have been by the law either. Please do glance down to verse 17. The law, 
came 430 years afterward. Like you, Abraham did not have the law because it had not been invented yet. He was saved by faith. Instead, verse 6, he just believed. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you're feeling rebellious, but in that most Christian of ways, you can actually mark your Bibles at this point and do someone a favor in the next service. Two key words to underline, counted and righteous. Uh, righteousness, uh, that's uh, the same word as righteous or justified in the, in the original language. It's all the same word. It's a legal word, and it just means right with God. It means declared, you know, legally okay. So there's a, there's a cheesy line, which I promised myself I wouldn't say. It's like that thing where you, you know, don't think about elephants, and now I'm thinking about it, so I'll share it with you anyway. To be justified is to be just as if I'd never sinned. It's a horrible piece of preaching, but it's kind of helpful. How did Abraham, the father of the faith, get justified? How did he become a righteous man? How did he get right with God? He didn't. It was counted to him. You know when you log into your online bank account, and uh, on a good day, you see a number in green on your statement? That's what this word counted means. It means imputed or reckoned to, or calculated. And uh, the fact that it was calculated to him and not by him means it was a gift. It's not a salary, it's a present. Therefore, verse 7, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you want to be a good Jew, have faith, says Paul. The best Jew is a Christian is what he's telling the Galatian church. So that's the positive case for grace. A very clear and positive case for grace. Looking at the history of their faith and proving to them that it is only by grace, uh, through faith, that one can be saved. Now, the question runs deep, what do I need to do? We keep coming back to it all of the time, as we've seen from church history. And so, Paul, having made a positive case for grace, look at the way you got saved, now makes a negative case against the law. Let's look at what will happen to you if you go down this legalism route, a negative case against the law. Verse 10. Here's the problem with everyone who finds an answer to what do I need to do. Verse 10. It is all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Not a blessing. You start pouring that stuff in, it doesn't make it better. Not a blessing, but a curse. Why does he say that? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You cannot just add in a few bits of the law here and there. Once you go down that route, you've got to keep the whole thing. And it gets out of control, this law-keeping. It gets out of control. There's always going to be more law to add in and more things to do. And you, he says, must abide by it all. Abide being a key word, meaning to dwell in or to live in or to hold fast to without fail. A new life characterized by all of the law. That's why he says in verse 11, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Because no one is that good. 
is really obvious. Now, at this point, we might be thinking, because we're Christians, we know where he's going with this, right? No one is that good. No one is perfect. No one keeps all the law. We know where he's going, because we know someone who is perfect. We know of someone who did keep all of the law. And verse 13 says to us, he, Christ, redeemed us from the curse of the law. So you might well be thinking at this moment in the letter, well, we know how he did it. By keeping it for us, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being perfect. That is a part of the story. But in this series on the cross, each week we're trying to zoom in as narrowly as possible on just one part. And Christ's obedience and perfection is a part of the story, but it's not the only part of the story. Because no matter how good Jesus was, it is evident to us that we are not. In fact, part of the problem of the perfection of Christ is that the more we look at the perfection of Christ, the more we realize our own failings. So if the only means of our salvation is Christ's perfection alone, it kind of leaves us with a problem that's yet unresolved, and that is our own sin. That's why we keep asking the question. Our awareness of our own sin is why we keep on asking, what do I need to do? Because our consciences call to us about our sin. They wake us up in the middle of the night, telling us what we have done wrong. It's why we feel bad. We feel bad because we are bad. So verse 13 says, He became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus did not merely call us to become like him. He became like us. That's the exchange. He exchanged places with us, counting to us his righteousness and taking from us our curse. That's the work of the cross. He did what we need to do, which is, to die under the curse of the law for our failings to keep it all. That's what we need to do. Face judgment and die. There's a book by the Highland soldier, Ernest Gordon. And uh, in a few moments' time at the Adult Forum, I'm going to share with you a clip from the movie version uh, of that film if if the group uh, consents to what is rather a violent scene. And uh, Ernest Gordon gives this account of uh, his experience as a prisoner of war in Burma during World War II, building what was known as the Railroad of Death. And he describes the brutality of the guards in his book and uh, the the conditions of the camp and uh, the, the inhumanity of the way they were treated. And Gordon, in the book, writes about two characters in particular. The first, Major Campbell, it is amusing seeing Gordon and a Campbell next to each other. It's the Holy Spirit. But uh, in, the, in the book, uh, Gordon writes about Major Campbell, who's this firebrand who hated the Japanese, and he wanted to kill them all. And he writes about another called Dusty, a Christian, who tried to make life in the camp more bearable. So when uh, someone was injured, Dusty would take care of their wounds. When someone was hungry, Dusty would, would claim that extra rations had been given but actually it would just be his own. He led little Bible studies and 
talks about the grace of Christ in the squalor of the camp. And not surprisingly, Major Campbell and Dusty kind of come into conflict quite frequently in, in the book. In the movie version, Campbell is caught trying to escape and he's to be executed. And just as the sword is raised above his neck, Dusty steps up to the front of the parade square and he whispers to the prison guard with as much respect as he can show, take me instead. He looks right into Major Campbell's eyes. The guard takes the sword and he cuts the ropes that bound Major Campbell's wrists. And he says to him, you are free. Then the guards, understanding just the rudiments of Dusty's faith, take him away to take his life. But instead of using a sword, they nail him to a cross. The curse does not disappear. It is exchanged on the cross. In his book, Gordon writes, Dusty, dead. Dusty, the man of deep faith and a warm heart. The man who is incapable of a mean act, even against a brutal tormentor. His goodness had been recognized not in sympathy, but in hate. Condemned by such radiant goodness, the officer must have gone berserk. There on that tree, like his master, he died. So far from his homeland, yet so near to God. And as news of Dusty's execution spread around the camp, having seen the wonder of this exchange on a cross, Gordon writes, I walked out from the group of chattering questioners. Not with a question, but in silence.